and welcome to The Bomb, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, folks, I have got two guests with me for this outing, both of them repeaters. My first guest is a bit of a jack of all trades. For our purposes here, he's coming to us with his experiences in film and synchro mysticism. He's my frequent collaborator. Folks, I give you guys the great Clay Vandevar. Clay, thank you so much for dropping by, sir. Good to be here with you, Recluse. Always a pleasure and uh, looking for quite a wild roller coaster ride on this show. Yeah, it is going to be something. Uh, and our next guest is also going to bring his unique voice to it. He has written about movies and music for mainstream magazines like Shindig and Total Movies and Entertainment, plus a variety of sleazy horror rags and zines. He is a Detroit-based musician with releases on Beggar's Banquet and XL Recordings, and his most recent outfit, The Octopus, which Freaking rocks, by the way. Released their debut LP on Rise Above Records. It's also a great record label, I will say as well. You'll find his daily horror movie reviews on Instagram, where he writes under the name Plastic Cheapies. And he's currently assembling a paperback of the Plastic Cheapies reviews that's titled, What's With All the Blood? Indeed, what is with all the blood? That should be out by Christmas. Folks, I give you guys the great Jay Freziato. Jay, thank you for dropping by again, sir. Thank you, Stephen. Good to be here. All right, folks, this is going to be an amazing show. With Halloween approaching, we're taking a long look at various horror films here on the farm. And in this particular case, we're taking a look at what is, in my mind, easily one of the most disturbing horror films ever made. It's one many have heard of, but not many people have actually seen. It's a little something called The Evil Within. This low-budget horror film has generated more interest over the years than many films of its status due to it being made by a Getty Hare who died suddenly before the film was completed. At the time, Andrew Getty had been working on Evil for years, he was literally on the verge of bankruptcy at the time of his death as a result of this film. His friends finally completed it several years later. The film is both remarkably professional, given the circumstances behind its production, as well as being deeply unsettling and weird. Think somebody putting a gun to David Lynch's head and insisting he do a straight horror movie and he goes out, he does his best, but bless his heart, he just can't help but delving into the old Lynchian weirdness. That's about what you get with the evil within. 
So this is going to make for a great discussion. So on that note, let us start the show. Okay, before opening up the floor, there are a few notions I need to unpack for listeners, especially if you haven't listened to my endless blathering on here for a while now. Specifically, I want to give you an overview on the subject generally known as theurgy, which we'll be referring to throughout this show. This literally means God work. It's a very ancient practice that dates back to the early days of ancient Egypt, at least in it's probably far more ancient than that. It's most famous for the role that it played in the Babylonian Empire. It continued in its pagan incarnation unabated in Haran among the Sabians until the 10th and possibly even the 11th century CE. In the Eastern Roman Empire, it was more or less openly practiced by fringe groups of the Orthodox clergy under the guise of Gnosticism or Neoplatonism until the frankly, almost nearly the fall of Constantinople. It continued among the Western clergy as well, though the quote-unquote higher version doesn't seem to have returned to Western Europe proper until around the Renaissance. It was central to many esoteric practices in that oh-so-mysterious of cities known as Venice, which was in fact an Eastern Roman city for centuries in Italy something that a lot of people don't take into account when they talk about the whole Venetian nobility or the black nobility, right? Anyway, easily the best account of this can be found in Peter Mark Adams' absolutely stellar, landmark, groundbreaking book, The Game of Saturn. So, what is theurgy then? Well, there are countless variations, so I'm going to give a highly simplified version here. Essentially, it deals with the practitioner's consciousness ascending through the celestial spheres, generally to return to the Milky Way. Many ancient civilizations saw the Milky Way as the repository of souls. Essentially, the soul came from the Milky Way, went through a journey into incarnation in the physical realm and earth here, and then upon death, it returned to the Milky Way through a similar kind of journey through the stars and the heavens. Basically, it was a journey of consciousness, and it was something that most people only embarked upon at death, but not for people who practiced the art of theurgy. 
the Egyptian Book of the Dead is essentially a manual for the practice of the ascension of the consciousness and a mimic of what would happen to it upon death. The other side of theurgy is what we would now think of as drawing down the moon. It involves summoning a planetary or stellar consciousness and inviting it to inhabit some vessel for the purposes of communication. In antiquity, these consciousnesses were typically transferred into elaborate statues and pagan temples. There are numerous accounts of talking statues that appear throughout the ancient literature. And you can still find accounts of these talking statues all the way up to the Huron Sabians, who maintained such things in their lunar temples until the 11th century. They were also accused of possessing a talking head, not unlike the later Knights Templar. The Templars were, of course, active in the same region, i.e. Syria, in the following centuries. And nor are these the only incidences of talking heads being mentioned during the High Middle Ages. The Dominican friar Albert Magus, Magus was also noted to have a mechanical head that could talk in his possession. Often wondered if these accounts of talking heads were actually theurgic devices, like the statues of antiquity or the ones that the Herensibians had. Anyway, we move into the Renaissance, and scrying becomes arguably the dominant form of theurgy. Mirrors in the Western tradition would increasingly be used for both the ascension and the dissension of consciousness. But it wasn't just the mirrors that held the entity if something was being drawn down. It was the magician himself who entered into a trance-like state, making it possible for something to enter into his mind. So keep that in mind as we delve into this discussion. So on that note, let's get into the questions proper here. All right, so the Gettys are a big part of the story. Let's start off with a crash course on the family. So take it for us, Jay. Well, I mean, I guess the whole thing starts with, uh, with uh, J. Paul Getty, who is born in Minneapolis in 1892. And his family, uh, pretty early on, I think it's like 1910, they discover oil in Oklahoma. So they start making some money doing that. Uh, so that's J. Paul Getty's parents. He goes to USC Berkeley and then he goes overseas and he attends uh, University of Oxford in 1912. And then he gets a letter of recommendation from then president of the United States, William Taft, to get independent instruction with tutors at Magdalen College, where he becomes friends with a bunch of uh, English aristocracy or royalty and he becomes friends with uh the prince of wales who's the future king edward uh the eighth of england so he graduates from oxford uh with like political science and econ i guess that was that was something at one point and travels to europe spends time in egypt comes back to america in 1914 uh and gets a, a ten thousand dollar loan from his dad to start consolidating their oil business and makes a pretty good deal, I guess, with 
Saudi Arabia. And by, I think it's 1957, uh, it's not Forbes, maybe it's Forbes, one of the economic, uh, one of the financial uh, magazines or somebody calculated him to be the most, uh, the wealthiest American alive. And I've heard estimates that uh, the fortune he left behind when he died adjusted for inflation is like 23 or 26 million somewhere in there, I'm sorry, billion, somewhere in there. But uh, so it's funny because over the course of his career, like I always just knew Getty from some of these stories we're about to get into that my dad would tell me, but you know, it's like he owns museums and like, if you're in, you know, advertising or production of any kind, you know, like Getty images, like that's, that's their family too. Uh, and on paper, I guess, but we'll, we'll get to it with, with like People Magazine when, when uh, Andrew Getty dies. But anyway, he, despite kind of like this public face of being, you know, involved in culture and he's an art and antiquities dealer or collector and stuff, he uh, was apparently just like a terrible, terrible man who's like his, uh, well, his youngest son got brain cancer and his primary reaction to it, according to some reports, was that he was just irritated how much the cancer treatment cost. And when the kid died uh, at the age of 12, he apparently didn't even attend the funeral. Uh, he had a payphone in his house for friends and family to use. Uh, he just, <laughs> just a, a character, I guess, a certain type of guy. He washed his own clothes, which, you know, that's a smart money-making move, I guess. But he, uh, he would trim the edges when they got frayed rather than buying new stuff. He made his friends walk around the block once for 10 minutes when they were all going to a dog show. So he could wait till the, the box office changed the ticket price to half off. So uh, he was thrifty and in kind of a, a foreshadowing of what would eventually happen with his own son, J. Paul Getty's father, when he passed, only left him a half million dollars out of a $10 million fortune because he didn't approve of J. Paul Getty's uh, womanizing and stuff. He eventually had uh, five different marriages and, uh, and whatnot. But the disinheritance thing is definitely like a, a Getty family trait, um, as is like overdosing from heroin and other drugs and stuff. Like if you read, you know, the family story, there's just a lot of death and a lot of suicide and people overdosing on alcohol and drugs and barbiturates and then still still having the wherewithal to stab themselves to death and stuff it's pretty it's pretty grim um so he you know being kind of the the patriarch of the getty family uh is relevant to the story because his grandson andrew made this this film but on the other side of the family andrew's cousin was famous for uh, having been kidnapped. He was the son of J. Paul Getty II. And he was real famously in the early 70s kidnapped by some mobsters who uh, wanted 4 million bucks. And J. Paul Getty had disinherited the kidnapped son's father. So the, the, the kid that was kidnapped was J. Paul Getty's grandson. And, but his father had been disinherited from the family for hanging out with Mick Jagger and, you know, he like partying a lot, I guess. 
So anyway, he, he, he goes to his father and says, you know, my son's been kidnapped. Will you please give me this money so we can, we can get him back. And J. Paul Getty's just like, no. And then the kidnappers cut off the, the, the kid's ear and mail it to him. And J. Paul Getty's still like, no. So they, uh, the kid's ear gets infected and the kidnappers start feeding him penicillin while they're waiting for the Gettys to give the money or for something to happen. And uh, he takes so much penicillin, he gets, uh, becomes allergic to it. And then they just start feeding him tons and tons of brandy to keep the pain from the severed ear under control. So J. Paul Getty finally negotiates the, the ransom down to like half of what they initially wanted and they get the kid back. But now the kid is completely addicted to uh, brandy becomes a really bad uh, drug addict and alcoholic and eventually is so addicted to these things that he has a stroke, which leaves him like blind, uh, incapable of speech and like paralyzed for the remainder of his life. Uh, and uh, Balthazar Getty of Lost Highway um, is, is his son, is the kidnapped victim's son, just to give you a, another view on the family. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the family story, you know, and then Andrew Getty comes into this with a certain degree of, of, uh, of inherited money and, you know, uh, is a big horror movie fan. And I guess that's the setup for, for what we're, what we're going to talk about. Well, did you have anything to add, sir? Um, no, not really. That was a good overview of the Getty family. Um, the one thing I would add is I can't remember if it was J. Paul Getty, um, but he learned Arabic before they discovered all that oil in the Middle East. I sure. think it was J. Paul Getty. Is that correct? I have a point regarding that. Was that him? Yep. Yeah, no, he Yeah, he definitely had a bunch of languages under his belt. And that was, I believe, one of them. So that's really interesting. And, and you know, uh, I, I don't want to cover this too much because it takes away from our other main points. But one interesting thing in the movie is that you see these dinosaur skeletons um, in the main foyer area and in Dennis's room. And there's also like a jungle, jungle type plants in the foyer. And I think that was Andrew Getty's way of saying it, as a double entendre that the Getty family knows where the bones are buried. And by bones, I think he means dinosaur bones and dinosaur uh, and plant matter from that area, which is where petroleum comes from. And uh, I think that he was telling us in a coded way that his family knew where the oil was before they were drilling there. That's wild. The Getty connection to the UK is also interesting for reasons that we'll uh, possibly get into. In fact, I think it was J. Paul Getty Jr. who what eventually like bought his way into becoming like a minor part of the aristocracy or something like that, I believe. Um, his father was also active in some of the um, more colorful circles in the UK during the 1960s as well. He had some kind of relationship with Stephen Ward, the society osteopath who was so central to the Perfumo scandal. Of course, this was the love triangle, quote unquote, between John Perfumo, who was a part of uh, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan's cabinet. 
as well as a Soviet military attache who was actually an agent of the GRU, the Soviet military intelligence. So both of these men were having an affair with a woman named Christine Keeler, who had a kind of arrangement with Ward where he semi-operated as her pimp, um, to put it rather bluntly. So anyway, Getty was involved with all of these circles and potentially also would have rubbed elbows with another one of uh, Mr. Ward's friends during this time in the early 60s in the UK, namely a private detective known as Thomas Corbally, who I've written quite a bit about. Of course, he worked for many years with uh, Roy Cohn, Donald Trump's uh, notorious attorney and political mentor. Corbally turns up in a lot of sex scandals, not just Perfumo. Uh, he also shows up in the Heidi Fleiss incident in Hollywood that really rocked the uh, city during the late 80s, the early 90s, and involved uh, certain individuals like Robert Evans and Jack Nicholson and a lot of other colorful characters. Uh, but also some of the peculiar happenings on Long Island and uh, specifically a rather kind of sadomasochistic leaning sex ring that was operating there amongst the elite in the late 70s, early 80s, at least, when it started to come to light a bit with the Monica Heller scandal. So these were the circles that Getty was running in, and I think that's kind of important to keep in mind going forward as we start to analyze uh, the evil within a bit. Uh, but anyway, I don't want to get us here too sidetracked with that. But um, so what about Andrew Getty himself? What is this guy's story? What have you got for us, Jay? Well, you know, it, it, you can the more you read about him, the more kind of enigmatic he seems. But uh, everybody agrees he was really into horror movies. Uh, he wrote apparently hundreds of scripts that uh, were never produced. Um, but this particular one, The Evil Within, initially he was going to call it The Storyteller. And uh, it's got, a, in my mind, a couple different flashpoints. One of them being this like insistence that he had, he apparently had like hellishly powerful nightmares as a kid. Uh, and he believed that they were put there by somebody else or that, uh, that dreams are stories someone else tells you. Uh, which in a way is like kind of a really elegant or, or very sad like metaphor for, you know, uh, interfered, interfered selfhood, you know what I mean? Uh, and so that was one side of it. And the other side was that he talked about uh, David Berkowitz and how David Berkowitz would say that, you know, the, the, the dog or the Doberman or whatever told him to commit the murders. Um. And in an interview, Andrew Getty's like, you know, uh, Berkowitz really believed this, that there was this dog talking to him and telling him to do these things. And Getty says, uh, my movie's about the dog. He's like, there is no dog, you know, but my movie is about the dog, which is like a really, there's a lot of layers there, I guess. Um, but yeah, so he, he, uh, he, around 2002 decided, I guess he'd made some short movies before this, but he decided he was going to make this evil within movie and uh it took him eight years or six years from 2006 to 2008 to actually shoot the thing which is you know crazy it's a long time 
Yes, I will also add that um, David Berkowitz claimed to have attended some of those parties in Long Island at the Hamptons that Corpoli's circle was involved with. And also he claimed to, Berkowitz that is to say, claimed to have encountered Roy Cohn at one point in these same circles. So that's interesting that Andrew Getty would uh, specifically single out David Berkowitz as an inspiration for this, though not entirely surprising, frankly, as if you're listening to this, we'll soon learn. <clears throat> uh, Clay, do you have anything to add about that, to, about Mr. Giddy? Um, not really. Joe covered it quite well. I mean, I just from a uh, filming perspective, he... I think he went nuts several times during the film. I mean, it took him 12 years to complete. He, This was much more than a film to him. He, I, I am absolutely convinced, I think as we all are, he was trying to communicate something to humanity about the elites um, and especially his life in these circles. And um, he uh, sadly suffered from drug abuse. He was addicted to cocaine and methamphetamine. Oddly enough, I think I may have went to a party at, a place he was either staying or hosting people at um, in an interesting side note, but I think Joe covered it quite well. Um, and uh, I think this movie broke him uh, mentally uh, trying to get it out. And uh, that combined with the drug use kind of um, led to his uh, demise. So um, I'm glad to be getting this story out in the way that I think he wanted to communicate and uh, it's uh, good to be doing this show. Jay, uh, can you take us through the film's production? As we've been talking about, it took years, what, I mean, nearly 12 years, and it became semi-legendary in the process. So what was up with all of it? Well, it sounds like, you know, he had people around him that were that, that were sort of taking advantage of him or, or not, at the very least, not advising him, you know, well. Uh, you know, because rather than, like, rent all the, the gear, which, you know, you would do on a production... Like he bought everything, like he bought the trucks and he bought the lights and he bought the cameras and he built his own rigs. And, you know, uh, it's it's hard to I mean, I, I'm bad at math, but it's hard to calculate what how wasteful that is. You know what I mean? Uh, and um, yeah, he finishes it in 2006, the shooting, but then goes into post-production, does all the visual effects himself, uh, you know, all the complicated animatronics and stuff. And some of the visual effects, you know, I'm going to guess you guys agree, are remarkable, you know, uh, for for what's technically like a low-budget horror movie. Um, he, uh, you know, at one point he relocated an entire carnival to the middle of the desert for the opening sequence, uh, which is pretty jaw-dropping. Uh, in and of itself, but you know, he had a he had a pretty good cast working on it. I mean, I've seen some some low budget horror movies, and everybody in it is is recognizable from something else. Uh, the star is Frederick Kohler. He plays uh, Dennis, who's the central character, uh, who's you know a mentally challenged thirty uh, year old, I guess. Um, one of the dudes from Boondock Saints plays his brother. Uh, Dina Meyer, who's been in a ton of TV shows and I guess is Starship Troopers and stuff. She's uh, Dennis's brother's uh, girlfriend. 
and Michael Berryman, you know, Pluto from, uh, from the Hills have eyes plays, I guess, I don't think he has another name in the movie. So he's like the mirror entity. He's the thing in the mirror that, uh, that the main character deals with. Uh, he's known as cadaver in, in, uh, in the credits, which is odd. Yeah. That's weird too. <laughs> like everything about the movie is, is, is really, uh, as you, it's, it's, it's a, it's a troubling, troubling movie. Uh, but, uh, yeah, as far as the production goes, you know, I think that's, that's the basic story of it, but you know, you, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that pretty much covers the production. And to put some perspective on this for the listeners, this is effectively how Kubrick made movies. Kubrick literally owned practically everything that you see showing up in his films. In many cases, he owned the costumes, the props. He owned the cameras that were used to film the scene. I mean, he didn't own the soundstage. I will, he tried to. He definitely tried. Yeah. But he didn't quite get to the point where he owned the soundstage. But most everything else, a lot of times the props, as I said, were things that he had in vast amounts of warehouses that he kept across the UK and beyond Europe. I think he even had a few in the United States as well. Uh, also, Kubrick, obviously, as he's famously gone on for 2001, did a lot of the special effects there, maybe not quite to the extent that he liked to claim, but he was always deeply involved in all aspects of the production. And I'm just pointing this out to illustrate Almost nobody has ever been able to make films like Stanley Kubrick, mm-hmm. um, with possibly the exception of what James Cameron, George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg. Whereas Getty seems to have been trying to make a film like Kubrick here, which, if nothing else, is is not cheap. <laughs> it's no. not cheap. So oh, that's. Oh, go ahead. Well, and, and to that point, like just the sheer amount of time that he spends working on it. like Yes, that's also very Kubrick-like as well. Like people died on the cast because it went on for so long. Like, you know, uh, at one point there there's a recurring scene in a restaurant and they actually make a point of it in the movie. They're like, everyone's different here now. And it's part narrative because it seems like at that point, reality is further kind of like rupturing or something maybe. But uh but it's also just because the people that they had to cast had all changed because it was now year, years after the first time that they'd shot there, you know, uh, just to illustrate kind of how long it dragged on. Yeah. And I will add, though, it's just because you when you read a lot of the reviews about this movie, it seems to get slammed a lot as being, you know, disoriented or disjointed or whatever. But it's very coherent in my opinion, especially when you do consider the circumstances and they were really, you know, pretty effortlessly able to uh, incorporate the discrepancies like you're illustrating there into the plot line. So, yeah, it's I, that's one thing that's sort of irksome to me about when I read a lot of the reviews of this, because it's it's much, much, much more professional than 99 percent of horror movies made for the same kind of budget that this film had. I mean, yes, the acting's not, 
Shakespearean or whatever, but compared to many horror movies of similar status, it's it's definitely quality. <laughs> it, it all does the job, you know, and and the it is remarkable that compared to a lot of movies of its level, like uh, you know, like the the horror convention, like the mythology or whatever you're seeing kind of happen on the screen has like an internal logic. Like it's not just, you know, a bunch of stone teenagers making a movie. Like it's, it's sound in and of itself as is if you kind of like, there are things that I don't totally get, but in general, if you're looking at this as like a coded, uh, a coded expression of very troubled personal experience, uh, you know, the metaphors and everything all kind of hold up and work together pretty well. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Clay, did you have uh, any other thoughts on the production there? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think Joe's point is right. Like, as far as his storytelling perspective, there are some continuity errors or scenes that kind of pop out that don't make sense. But overall, the message is really communicated well of what happens in the what i think is happening is demonic possession in the elites and uh how it's initiated in their children that message is communicated very well and he has a lot of coded messages in there that are a little hard to decipher but once you take a deeper look it's quite troubling and i think he did a great job of leaving um breadcrumbs to that effect throughout the whole movie so um yeah it, it, it what it lacks in certain continuity errors and quite frankly at times god-awful set design uh it makes up for it in the storytelling aspect and in the overall message of the film all right jay so uh by the way, I mean, it's probably going to be pretty evident to most people listening to this uh, when I get to the next question here, but spoilers ahead. So, Jay, can you give us a quick overview of the plot uh, just, you know, so we'll have some perspective here for people who haven't seen the film? Sure. The Yeah. So the, the first kind of thing that happens is this long, uh, you know, self-consciously dream sequence, dream sequence that, that opens it up with, with. Uh, the narrator talking to the audience in what's important to note, like a perfectly normal, uh, you know, narrative voice. And he's a little boy and he's talking about how kind of like the, 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 the blurred boundary between stories and memories and dreams and, you know, uh, things that we happened to us when we were young or dreams that we had when we were young. And he's going to a carnival, which is just in this desolate plain of desert. And there's like, you know, a ticket booth. And a couple of carnival-y things scattered out. And it's really bleak and weird. Um, and there's a haunted house that has a big sign on it that says scariest in the world. And he wants to go in it. And his mother is very icy and remote. And she's like, you know, are you sure you want to? It's supposed to be the scariest in the world. So he goes in and takes this ride. And it's apparently completely anticlimactic. But when he comes out, and I only noticed this when I rewatched it last night. He's now narrating it in the voice of a, you know, mentally challenged uh, person. And it occurred to me, like, 
the 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 ride had something to do with that because he he he's one way going in and he's another way coming out uh and he asks his mom like that was a ripoff there was no ride there at all and she then introduces the idea which is the overarching theme of the movie which is that he's still in the haunted house uh and from there it it goes into you know he kind of wakes up in bed and he's an adult now but now he's still dreaming and he's in this horrific basement and in his house in this dream and he finds a mirror that has like a tortured uh like a like an anguished angel on top of it and i'm not sure if he first encounters Berryman's uh cadaver at that point uh but when he wakes up his brother and his brother's girlfriend are coming home and they want to put a mirror in his room and it's the same mirror from his in, from his dream the night before with the anguished angel and he doesn't want them to do it because he'll have to move his uh hamster habit trails which are running all through his uh his bedroom and there's a big fight about it in on any level except maybe one i can't figure out why the brother's so insistent that he keep this mirror but he really wants him to take the mirror and then that night uh or it may have been in the initial dream sequence i apologize i can't remember but berryman's uh cadaver uh attacks him in like very disturbing you know violation type imagery so uh the narrator's on his bed and Berryman's on top and he is unzipping him and he unzips the protagonist, Dennis, and like climbs inside his skin and it's horrifying. <laughs> uh, so from there, you know, the movie is basically about his brother's anxiety over taking care of, a you know, his, his younger uh, brother who's 30 years old and needs help. And his girlfriend wants him to marry, marry her and there's just kind of all this back and forth that's going on while Dennis, the, the, the hero, such as he is, uh, starts communicating with a version of himself in the mirror, who's also sort of also this Berryman cadaver, but they, they switch shapes. Um, and his reflections proposes this idea that, you know, we, we need to switch places. And if you do what I tell you, you'll start to become smart and you'll become a better person. And then eventually you can come into the mirror where I am and I can come into the world outside where you are and we'll both be happier. And so Dennis is, is into the idea and his reflection first wants him to start like killing animals. So he, he goes out and he, starts killing animals and he fills up this uh this freezer in the basement with with these animals um and then he starts bringing home like books on tape about taxidermy which his brother john finds and is troubled by but he's like oh no you know they weren't mine they're my bag must have got switched at the store and his brother's just like oh okay <laughs> that's fine you're working in the basement but i'm sure it's fine so he like you know forgets about it so then the mirror reflection wants him to kill children so he does that and it's you know you you know where it's going but you're also like i have no idea where this is going um even on a second watch 
it's 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 hard it feels very wily and unpredictable uh then the reflection makes him kill the woman at the ice cream shop who he's in love with who's sort of like a nice nice gal who is nice to him you know but uh and that's the point where you think like, oh, okay, this is going to become like a slasher now. So he goes to attack her at the ice cream place, but she runs outside and is hit by a car. So then there's a long stretch where Dennis's brother and the, the girlfriend are kind of arguing about when is he going to get married? And he wants to, she wants to have kids. And he's like, I want to have kids too. And she's like, you know, I want, I want a, a small kid that isn't 30 and doesn't masturbate. He like tells her, you know, he's like, well, no, seriously, I want to have kids. And then he gives her a box on the table and you think he's going to propose to her, but it's just earrings. So that kind of dynamic is going on. And when she finally kind of relents and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, it's right before or right after Dennis's brother confesses to a psychiatrist that he's responsible for Dennis's condition. Yeah, it's it's right after that, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So he's like, oh, okay, all right. Well, you know, she's like, I'll live with you and I'll live with Dennis and we'll be a family and whatever. So they go back to the house or she goes back to the house. He stays behind. And this is the point at which Dennis has now actually forcibly switched places with his reflection. His reflection is now out in the world and Dennis is trapped in the mirror. And so when she comes back to the house, it's actually Dennis's reflection who then in a horrible, horrible scene takes a power drill and drills out her skull and then uses like some sort of air jet thing to blast everything out the top of her head. This is the point that the brother John has a run-in with this really, one of the fair, funniest characters in the movie who's sort of like a, a Seinfeldian character who clears up the misunderstanding about the taxidermy books on tape. So John realizes all in a rush, oh no, Dennis is, you know, this isn't good. So he flees back to the house. And when he gets there, he gets glued to a chair and Dennis puts on this horrific puppet show using all the animals and children and people that he's killed up to this point. Uh, and he's turned their bodies into like a giant spider. He's turned their bodies into a reenactment of how he actually uh, suffered his brain injury as a kid, which is that his brother uh, beat him in bed with a baseball bat and then threw him down the stairs and tried to pin it all on just a, uh, a fall down the stairs. And it's revealed that Dennis was actually a genius as a child, uh, like a mathematical wizard and uh, maybe wrote poetry and stuff too, who the whole family thought, you know, had this fall down the stairs that that caused his condition, but it was actually his brother beating with a baseball bat. So the movie ends kind of with Dennis staging this horrific revenge against his brother with all these human marionette animatronic hybrid things. And then it ends with Dennis's reflection, like his mirrored self in a straitjacket in an institution and Dennis trapped infinity mirror kind of effect uh way 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 deep inside the mirror that was well said jay and you definitely hit on a lot of the really relevant plot points but obviously there's just so much that's disturbing about this film i mean you can maybe start with a whole process of 
basically him being groomed into becoming a serial killer, beginning with uh, killing animals, specifically cats. Um, for those of you unaware, usually it's a major milestone in anybody budding serial killer's life when they kill their first cat. From there, I guess it's nice, easy step up to humans or something. But anyway, he goes through that whole process. Obviously, you have the implications that all of this is being done from possession, the indications of abuse within the family, in this case, uh, coming from the brother. So obviously, even without getting into a conspiratorial take on this film, there are a lot of very pointed plot points in this, to put it mildly. So let's start getting into some of the more speculative uh, takes that you could possibly discern in this film all right clay you think there are numerous references to one of the most mysterious places in this nation namely wisconsin's house in the rock you know i'm a big fan of that so can you unpack that for us uh, absolutely and let me say this that if he's not referencing house on the rock he's referencing what i think house on the rock is which is a place of ritual conditioning for the elite. And I'll, I'll get into that. And you find similar places like the Halloween room in the Vanderbilt mansion, um, where there's these like carnival kind of rooms and spaces that seem to defy space and time. And, uh, th th that are used for ritual conditioning. Um, Recluse knows more about the uh, the Halloween room and comment on that, but I'll, I'll talk specifically on in, in House on the Rock. But the, what's really interesting is that if it were just one reference, I'd probably think, oh, that's kind of a, a mere coincidence. But there's there's a couple really pointed references, and perhaps it is just synchronicity. But but I'll go through them point by point. Um, the first one is the picnic scene in the opening, which doesn't really seem to make any sense. They're having a picnic, and Dennis and John and Lydia, are, he's eating chicken. He's talking about how much he wants to get ice cream. And what's really interesting about the picnic is that House on the Rock was discovered uh, according to Alex Jordan's story, which recluses poked many, many holes in that he was having a picnic one day in Spring Green, Wisconsin, when he decided to up and start building a house on somebody's private property, which became House on the Rock. So I thought that was a really pointed reference. And especially at the opening of the film, I find that very interesting. And there's in the kitchen of the house, which, again, doesn't seem to make sense in the movie at all. There's all these 1950s decals on the wall um, of old oil companies and kind of uh, knickknacks from the 50s. And it just reeks like it came out of House on the Rock because House of the Rock is essentially two things it's or many things. It's animatronics, it's dolls, it's a cacophony of collectibles 
that that seemingly make no sense. It's it's a carnival of the macabre. Um, it, it's hard to describe unless you've been there. But um, one thing that they have in House of the Rock is all these 1950s decals and, co- and collectibles and old advertisements from the 50s. And they're in the kitchen and then they have these 1950s decals, which seem to make no sense. Again, keep in mind, this is his house in the Hollywood Hills in L.A. Um, they have these 1950s decals, which are so out of place. And while they're in front of the 50s decals, John Peterson refers to, he's talking about selling the home with Lydia. And he refers to it as a summer home. And it's clearly a house in the Hollywood Hills. So why would he be referring to it as a summer home? House on the Rock is certainly a summer home. And it's filled with 1950s decals, among other many collectibles. And it gets even weirder from there. So the other weird reference is we see Lydia in full frame in two instances in front of a giant fireplace and it's taking up the whole frame and it doesn't seem to make sense at all um you you could argue they're trying to be hip and show some kind of like outdoor fire pit scene in la but that's not the kind of fireplace it is it's clearly like an uh, an old victorian style fireplace and one of the hallmarks of House on the Rock are these just bizarre fireplaces that they're probably about six feet wide and what recluse like two feet high or something. And they have these odd chimneys in the back. I mean, they, they don't make any sense as mere fireplaces. And if one were to sit in front of it and there was a camera in front of them, it would take up the entire frame. So that that's another what I believe to be a pointed reference for House on the Rock. And then the mirror room that Dennis goes into at 27.50 in the movie, 27 minutes, 50 seconds in, he goes into this room full of mirrors. And it's eerily similar to the infinity room in house on the rock. So house on the rock has this room that stretches out of the rock cliff. That's on top of this hill in spring green, Wisconsin. And when you walk out on this path and I, I believe there are mirrors in the front, but I think that the, the mirror room in the, uh, the house in the evil within is referencing that. And then another another reference to House on the Rock, there are all these trap doors and small doors throughout the house. And on a larger scale, we seem to see these trap doors in a lot of elite houses. We have them at uh, Taliesin, Frank Lloyd Wright's house. We have them at the log cabin, which Frank Zappa lived in in Laurel Canyon. Um, with the house that uh, Vito Palakis uh, who was in, uh, head of the Freaks in the 60s, lived in, had trap doors where his son Godo was apparently sacrificed. Um, you have trap doors inside House on the Rock. The, the, this theme of trap doors constantly comes up in these elite homes. So 
uh, in 37 minutes and 50 seconds in, Dennis appears to be hiding inside of a trap door. So he's inside this room that makes zero sense inside of a house in LA in this small trap door. Um, and that's a larger conversation, by the way, the idea that there's a basement in a house in LA itself is a, is a whole nother rabbit hole to go down. But at 37 minutes and 50 seconds in, Dennis is inside of a trap door. Yet another reference to House on the Rock. But the biggest reference reference comes at one hour and eight seconds in. There's a restaurant that they go to, and it has an animatronic band playing. And the animatronic band just so happens to feature an octopus. And the octopus's garden animatronic set in House of the Rock is right by the restaurant in the middle of House on the Rock. So, again, it and animatronics are not just... That's not the only time we see animatronics in this film. You see them... You could argue the mannequins themselves in the basement are a form of animatronics, but you certainly see animatronics at the very end in one of the most macabre scenes I think I've ever seen in film when, uh, when Dennis is playing for lack of a better word, the animatronics of Lydia and the sacrificed children that he has that, that, that is one of the most macabre scenes I've ever seen in film history in, in my watching of film and the question becomes what is it with these animatronics? And I would argue that the animatronics, there's much more to the animatronics in house on the rock than meets the eye. I'm not going to say all of the animatronics embody this, but I think there were rituals involved with these animatronics and that there were sacrifices made in front of them. And that some of these animatronics are filled with the culpas, if you will, of sacrificial victims. And I think that that Andrew Getty is communicating that here. And I, I think that this is much bigger than House on the Rock uh, with this animatronic stuff. I don't think it's just confined to that. I, I think that Alex Jordan was perhaps putting it on display there for the public to see and that this is a, a tradition within the elites um, first starting with dolls, and this is where the idea of the android comes up. Um, the, the actual definition of an android is a personified uh, doll. And it's really interesting, isn't it, that there's all this convergence between transhumanism and demonic possession and, and the idea of the android. And I think that what you're seeing at House on the Rock is him advertising to the public some of the rituals that they do in these elite circles. And I think that's what Andrew Getty was commenting on here. Well, I think you also have to take into account Disneyland as well. Um, or is it Disney world? I always forget what the LA version is called, but I definitely think that it's really significant in the opening of the movie that his mother is taking him to that amusement park uh, to go into the haunted house. I definitely think that 
that was a major reference to the role that some of these amusement parks and theme parks play in a lot of this. But certainly House on the Rock, I think, is also preeminent to this. And again, I know that this probably sounds incredible to a lot of people uh, listening to this, but just to sort of put some perspective in this to get back to these manners that uh, many of the American gentry, like the Vanderbilts and the DuPonts had, uh, as I've had an opportunity to tour many of them over the last two years or so. And there are certain features that many of them all have in common. One that is especially peculiar is the lack of use that many of these residences got. As Clay was kind of alluding to, when you look at something like the Biltmore for instance, which the Vanderbilt family built at great expense in Asheville, North Carolina, and had to continue to maintain at great expense. Essentially, an entire village had to be built outside of the Biltmore just to sustain the operations of the manor, okay? Uh, so this wasn't cheap to do all of this in a fairly isolated region of North Carolina at the time. And then on top of that, they rarely use the thing. They're only there for like maybe a month or two out of the entire year. And this is true of a lot of these residencies. You know, again, rich people do very eccentric things, no doubt. But the cost of building one of these things and maintaining it is just absolutely extravagant for even by these standards, for something that you're barely going to use. So on top of that, there are other characteristics of uh, more metaphysical uh, indication implications. Typically, there are many references to Greco-Roman deities, but especially Diana and Neptune and Apollo. You see shrines to Diana or in various guises. Uh, I argued before that Columbia is effectively a kind of syncretic goddess uh, that merges elements of Diana, Pallas Athenia, um, Sibylle, a few others to sort of an American version of this. But whatever this sort of huntress slash mother deity as well represented in many of these manners, there's typically something that's known as the, the Dome of Love or the Temple of Love, where there's an elaborate statue dedicated to her. As I said before, there's always references to Apollo, uh, sometimes through the personification as the Sun King. This was especially a big one, uh, I believe, for the, um, the DuPont family, if I'm not mistaken. But then again, they're French, so I suppose that makes a certain kind of sense. <laughs> But anyway, uh, there are a lot of those. There are the, again, also the Neptune ones uh, that appear time and again. And uh, to be more specific, many of these residences also have certain furniture in common. You see these Venetian pews, which are quite colorful. Um, many of them were crafted during the Renaissance in Venice. Obviously, they have these uh chimera looking creatures typically depicted on the armrests they are truly bizarre they're almost i don't know like snakes sometimes with the upper body of humans but also you see something like uh, maybe a griffith or something sometimes the legs uh there are always 
Flemish tapestries, typically that are housed in rooms dedicated to housing them, are quite large. These tapestries almost always depict Greco-Roman scenes involving Diana and sometimes Pan. Typically, Diana is hunting something. So, to pull back a bit, the purpose to my mind to a lot of these, especially when you consider the arrangement of a lot of these features, is to tell a story when you enter into these places. So, I'll just give you an example of the Lars Anderson House, which is now the headquarters of the Society of Cincinnati in D.C., because I've been to this uh facility quite a few times now and it's a bit smaller than some of these other ones so you don't have to go on endlessly about the various rooms right but this is another very storied family more so from isabel anderson she was a member of the weld family who are one of the big boston brahmin dynasties essentially harvard university is their legacy if you will just incredibly wealthy for generations upon generations and still a lot of famous family members tuesday weld for instance is a part of the family but anyway you walk into the winter home that they had in washington dc which again they only used about a month and a half out of the entire freaking year and you're in the waiting room you've got the venetian pews that i was just describing the ceiling, you've got murals of all the different orders and stuff that they were involved with, the Red Cross, the Society of Cincinnati, the Dodge of the Revolution, etc., etc., etc. So you know what they're about. You walk through the doors, go through a spiral staircase, and there's a huge painting on the wall as you're ascending. It shows a scene from the coronation, that glorious city of Venice that we keep mentioning, Get up to the second floor right before they let you into the main quarters. And there, the walls are covered in murals on all four sides. You see good old George Washington in his Freemasonic Enochian guise, handing down the law to the Marquis Lafayette. George is flanked by Columbia, by a Diana. Got all the watchers flying around him in the background. You go through the doors and you enter into the one of the hallways where they've got the tapestries. You start seeing all those scenes of Diana hunting pan and all this other stuff. And you start getting into the main room where the ballroom is. Well, I think everybody should probably be getting a picture here. Something is being conveyed on you because this is how the guests to these establishments would have gone through this when they were attending a formal gathering there. So you're being told what your hosts are, and then you are being presented with a series of esoteric images as you enter into the main area. We have the dining facilities and the major hallway and all this other good stuff where they would have the quote-unquote balls and all this other kind of stuff, probably with the old Venetian masks that you see in Eyes Wide Shut, but I don't know that. But not surprise me if these would be the circles that would have those things, right? So, again, this is all speculative on my part. I don't know anything here for sure. But I would suggest that, at a minimum, Andrew Getty 
very strongly believed there were ritualistic purposes to these manners. Would have gone to many of them as a member of the Getty family. And if he's looking at a lot of the same kind of stuff that I am, he could in theory get a certain kind of ideal Clay is alluding to from these places because they are very peculiar like that. And even the historians who give you the tours of these things will acknowledge that all the trappings in these places are meant, in fact, to convey a story to you as you are going through the different rooms. And then there are, of course, the incredibly strange features. Some of these residencies, like the quote-unquote Halloween room, with its Harlequin-esque paintings all over the walls, literally onto the walls that is in the basement, the Biltmore, almost dead center in the house, right? So, yeah, but, you know, again, I'm insane. The Vanderbilts obviously just built this thing because they needed a really, really nice place to celebrate Halloween or put, I think now they're saying that they used it to put on a play every 10 years or something like that. Obviously that's why they would have put something like this in this elaborate manner. Okay. And House on the Rock, I mean, you know, it does that phenomenal job of breaking your sense in time and space. And it had all of these influences from the Swan King in Bavaria and his peculiar sense of architecture that was derived from Wagner and the stories embedded in his plays that he also wanted embedded to many of his castles that Alex Jordan became so taken with. That would be, I think, a fair observation that Jordan was trying to mimic the structure of some of these castles and manors that have been built by the great nobles and aristocrats over the years in Europe and these United States and other Western nations. So, again, we're speculating here, but I would say that at a minimum, Andrew Getty probably believed these places had a distinctly ritualistic purpose embedded in them and maybe even more mainstream places like Disney World.
All right. So, Jay, you've been to House on the Rock, right? So do you got any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I think it's interesting to consider when the, the narrative here versus like what the public story is. Because when I, when I went there, I was just like, as a tourist, I was like, oh, this place is supposed to be crazy. And like we went there and, you know, there's so much literature that they make available about Jordan and his story of building the place. And like the picnic story is presented as just like, this is what happened. And, you know, the, the basic idea is he was a wacky guy. He built this wacky place. You know what I mean? Uh, but it is a really weird place. And the experience of going through it is like, yeah, on one hand, it's like, it's kitschy. It's like, oh, this is super over the top, but it's, there is, throughout the whole thing there's a there's a very strange feeling and a strange undercurrent that even you know when i went there years ago i was i was cognizant of uh yeah and and the infinity room is definitely like the way that that mirror room that you were talking about clay uh is designed in the movie it it's very self-consciously representative of like the geometry of being in that infinity room you know like the way that's got like the the ceiling cuts your vision in half, kind of. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, like it's, I don't think that that's accidental because I was watching for that when I looked at it last night. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a strange place. Absolutely. Well, all right. Uh, Clay, do you want to unpack the whole notion of the basements that you were alluding to earlier on the film and how curious that is for L.A.? Yeah, it, it's always interesting whenever you see a basement in the house of a film that's set in L.A. because there are no basements in L.A. because of structural issues with earthquakes. Um, one really popular one that comes to mind is a scene in Pulp Fiction in the gun store, which um, I would love to do an episode on Pulp Fiction one day and my thoughts on that, but... Needless to say, there aren't gun stores with basements in L.A. <laughs> and what's really curious about this house and the way it's used in the film is I, I would argue the house is a character in the film. And, and uh, Andrew Getty's trying to tell us something with his house. Um, so the basement is a really creepy place um and for and again again there are no basements in la yes homes are built into the hills but they're not basements they're just bottom floors built in the hills with a retaining wall in the back um so the ref the first reference to the basement is in his opening dream with the cadaver um which is just that scene is so creepy um, where the cadaver unzips him and comes inside of his body. It's just super creepy. Um, the room is filled with mannequins and dolls of all kinds. Um, the really eerie feature of them is they don't seem to have legs or arms, um, which uh, is again, a whole different rabbit hole. But so what, is this room and why is he featuring a basement in a home in the Hollywood Hills in LA? Well, I would argue that there actually are basements in homes in LA 
but not for the public. I, I am under the firm belief, especially after reading Dave McGowan's book, Weird, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, that there are many tunnel systems within the Hollywood Hills. And how big they are, I don't really know, but I'm absolutely convinced of it after reading that book. And there's all kinds of rumors about it. Um, there are rumors that the Playboy Mansion itself has tunnels under it. Um, and there's too many rumors for it just to be conjecture, just for it to be part of the rumor mill. Um, and in Inside Weird Scenes in the Canyon, Dave McGowan goes over how in countless examples of these houses, in Frank Zappa's house, the log cabin, in Houdini's house, in... Uh, and again, I do apologize for not having the specific references here. I don't have the book in front of me, but he makes numerous references to houses with tunnels in Laurel Canyon. And it's it's beyond a mere coincidence uh, to, to just be a few homes that have tunnels. So I think that Andrew Getty is signaling something here, that there are basements in these homes, but the homes of the elite. They're off limits to the public, that the elites have some kind of basement rooms where these rituals go on in L.A. They have tunnels. I think some of these homes that are next to each other have tunnels between them. Um, and there's, it's not just the tunnels. Um, it's the idea of these trap doors. So again, the, the trap doors that we see in Frank Lloyd Wright's house, in, um, Taliesin in Vito Palakis's house in Laurel Canyon in the log cabin. And of course in uh, house in the rock. So they're, they're part and parcel of the same thing. Um, and I think these things are used in rituals. So, um, in 59 minutes, 30 seconds in Lydia and John go to the basement and they finally see where Dennis does his quote unquote carpentry. Um, and it's a, and when they go into the basement, they go into this really small, creepy room. It must be five feet by five feet inside the basement in a trap door. And, it, it's it's super eerie. So not only do you have a basement, you have this this trap door, trap room inside the basement. And not only that, John John Dennis's brother makes numerous references to a vault. He said that he got the mirror from a vault inside of a vault. And that's another thing that Dave McGowan references constantly in weird scenes in the canyon are these vaults or vault rooms. Um, and you have um, outside of the trap doors and all this. Oh, sorry. One more very important point of the trap door. So at the very end scene, when John goes in the trap door and finally finds out what's going on and sees, uh, Dennis playing uh, or putting on his macabre uh, animatronic show. The room says it's showtime as an obvious reference to the dark happenings of Hollywood. So I'll leave that part at that. <laughs> but what's also interesting, and I didn't understand this for the longest time in the movie until now, until I read, read weird scenes inside the Canyon. 
which was why he had all these hamster tunnels in the house. I'm like, what is what is the importance of this? And it's clearly important because when you open on the hamster tunnels, he does this pan, this uh, speed zoom shot of one of the tunnels. And he, and not only that, he's always caring for the hamsters and his brother keeps trying to get rid of the hamster tunnels and he like, he throws a fit every time his brother tries to get rid of the hamster tunnels. So he, it's not only the hamster tunnels themselves, it's the hamsters. He cares for them. And I am sorry for this. This is very dark, but I think he was trying to tell us that there are children that are being sacrificed and they're kept in these tunnel systems. And I think that's exactly what he was trying to communicate in these hamster tunnels. And that's why he put it in there. Um, and that, that is my belief on that. But at the very least he is exposing, he, he is putting the basement in that trap room and these trap doors in that house to, to, to show what's going on in some of these elite homes. Jay, how do you see doubling factoring into the evil within? You know, it's it's a really uh, it's a strange aspect of the movie, and I yeah I flip flop on on my take on it. But there are key scenes in the movie where you could interpret what's happening in the way that it's the way that the the events are arranged next to each other that on some level maybe like. Dennis and his brother are aspects of the same psyche. Uh, like there's one scene where uh, Dennis is talking into his mirror as he always does. I think it's a scene where he's laying on the ground and he's got the, it's one of those mirrors with the, uh, you know, the tilt action on it with the two legs. And so he's laying on the floor and he's got the mirror in front of him tilted down to him. And he's talking to himself about what's, what, what his brother John and Lydia are probably up to at the restaurant where they are. So it's cutting back and it's showing them talking and it's showing him and he narrates it like with, with absolute and very eerie accuracy. He knew, Oh, this is the part where now Lydia is going to get angry. And now John's going to try and make her feel better by saying this and they're going to have a fight and blah, blah, blah. So he's narrating it. And it's, uh, you could say that he's familiar with their interactions to the point that he can narrate it. Or you could say, oh, well, the movie's saying that he's becoming psychic through his communion with this mirror. And I'm sure all that works. But there's also the notion that I couldn't shake that Dennis knew what John was doing because Dennis is John or vice versa. Uh, the idea does not carry through the whole movie, but it pops up enough that that I was like, you know, that's, that's really strange. Uh, and I, I mean, what do you guys make of that? Do you think that that's, that's far off or? I mean, I hadn't considered that, but I could see that being a potential possibility, uh, is sort of different, you know, manifestations here of, uh, I mean, I guess what archetypes or something like that. You could see the two brothers as representing uh, separate archetypes within maybe the same individual. But yeah, that is an interesting take on it. Um, it, it kind of reminds me too of that really odd scene uh, with John. John is the, the brother, right? Yeah. So he it's towards the end when I think he's out with his girlfriend at that 
restaurant and he sees that guy with his back to him and he thinks that's his psychiatrist and he starts flipping out because he thinks that he forgot an appointment that they had so he goes over there and taps the guy on the back and it turns out not only is it not his psychiatrist but it's this abnormally tall guy who speaks in this slurred voice and he's really insulted because he thinks that john came up and um accosted him because of his size because he's you know because he thinks he's sort of uh obviously he's physically abnormal and he wanted to comment on it uh, so it's very strange because first you're wondering how could john have confused this particular individual with his psychiatrist I mean, obviously, I guess they have maybe a, a similar jacket or something like that. But even then, it just seems like a very odd mistake since they're so physically different. But also, too, the the quote-unquote giant is somewhat similar to Cadaver. I know when I had first seen it, I had been wondering if Michael Barrymore was playing this character as well. So it's odd that you have almost like that uh, twin doubling there with um john maybe being confronted by a, another manifestation of the cadaver figure maybe in the physical realm and i mean who knows maybe that's a tip of the hat to the possibility that he and his brother are the same person one yeah i mean that's a really interesting point you bring up jay like uh, uh, you could think of it as dennis is the stunted child within John's head that had these rituals happen up until the age of 12 or whatever, which I do believe happens with these elite family members. I think they're under some kind of demonic conditioning, and I hope that we can get into that here. But you very well could argue that Dennis is the trapped child, dualistic trapped child, inside of john's head and there's nothing in the movie that could contradict that either it's kind of open-ended um and that's that's really compelling because then you could see you know because you do have the indication at the end that john became prone to violence like what when he's a teenager with the implications that he beat dennis but i mean who knows maybe that was another brother who didn't survive (laughs) um gosh that actually kind of very well could be kind of reminds me got a bit of the the vanderbilt family with um what is the name anderson cooper's brother and that whole bizarre suicide with that but yeah that is interesting so possibly dennis is the the child personality that's separated and then john because you have other indications that he's very callous and uh, self-centered throughout the film obviously there's also his inability to commit to his long-term girlfriend i mean all this other stuff so yeah that uh, i do think that uh, that duck would hunt maybe yeah and, there, and the, there's also a bit where what toward the end when dennis finally decides you know i don't want to do this anymore or whatever and he gets a gun and he goes to kill himself uh and i believe that's when his doppelganger in the mirror comes out and switches places with him so he fails to to shoot himself uh but what actually happens with john is when he's glued to the chair and he has to watch this whole terrifying uh you know uh, 
animatronic play about what happened to them as children, his reaction is to grab a pistol and just like Dennis had done maybe 10 minutes before, you know, points it in his mouth. And he actually, if I recall correctly, blows his own head off at that point. Uh, so yeah, correct, he does. It is like you could totally take it as this, as Dennis being, I think, a remnant of an artifact, you know, of, of whatever he went through as a kid still existing in inside of himself yeah i mean you could actually almost see the the end as being symbolic of the dennis personality finally emerging to the surface after it's it's been possessed of course and then uh john's suicide as being the, the death of that personality if you will it's kind of like because he basically puts on that macabre show for john at the end with the animatronics that could be sort of a i guess maybe a reveal by the dentist personality of what he's actually been doing which is so devastating that it totally eliminates the john personality right and if you look at the movie in the, kind of in that way i mean it it starts with him going to this thing that he thinks is going to be fun or whatever and uh you know almost immediately after is the is the is the the scene where the cadaver gets on top of him and then occupies him. And then, you know, the rest of the movie is just these different, these different aspects sort of duking it out or whatever. And in a way, you know, all of them, you know, Dennis, the Dennis mirror doppelganger, the cadaver, John, and maybe even that weird giant at the restaurant are all in some way, you know, uh, representing different aspects of this internal conflict which i don't uh, you know that interpretation wouldn't negate any of the other ones i think that that's that's what's remarkable about this movie is how much it entertains all these different sort of things yeah well on that note uh talking about a movie that's quite obsessed with doubling and honestly could be seen as a film that holds a mirror up to the viewer if uh, jason horsley is be is to be believed uh, let's get into Kubrick's version of The Shining for a moment. Clearly, it was a major influence on the evil within. So, Clay, can you speak to that? Uh, yes, I can. Um, I, you know, it's really interesting that the restaurant that they go to, which I, I believe is the top level of Andrew Getty's house, but they make it look like it's a restaurant. And a hotel, or, or at least a restaurant. It is called the, that's where his brother John goes with Lydia a couple times. That's where he sees the giant character that is so out of place, like that looks like he's from like a circus um, freak show. I, I don't mean that disparagingly to the guy, but that, that's how it's portrayed in the film. But um, the, that uh, um, restaurant uh, is called The Overlook. And that's the name of the hotel that, was in The Shining that Kubrick referenced. And it is my contention that Kubrick may have been referencing, if not this hotel, some other hotel that the elite went to and perhaps performed rituals that was closed off only to them. And the hotel I'm talking about was the uh, Lookout Mountain Inn which was at the top of Laurel Canyon in the 19 early 1900s. Um, it was, uh, oh, sorry. I don't have the exact 
facts on me, but I think it burned down in 1918 and it was started in, I want to say 1908. Um, and the Dave McGowan goes into it a lot in weird scenes inside the Canyon. So the best way to describe it was what we know of as Laurel Canyon Boulevard, which goes from Hollywood over the Hollywood Hills and into the valley, um, specifically Studio City on the other side in the valley, that road originally went to the Lookout Mountain Inn. And the Lookout Mountain Inn was only open to elites. You, you could not go there. It was not open to the general public. And there's all kinds of rumors that there were dark rituals that went on there. Um, at the very least, a ton of sex and drugs. And uh, it it burned down mysteriously in a fire, um, which is another thing Dave McGowan brings up a lot about these houses in Laurel Canyon. Uh, they seem to burn down a lot. Um, and he thinks that's either to cover up evidence or as part of some kind of dark ritual or a bit of both. He doesn't really say w- why exactly he thinks that, but he mentions both as possibility. Um, and I also think that the overlook is not only referencing the lookout mountain Inn, but I also think it's making a double entendre reference to the lookout mountain air force station, which not many people know about to this day. Um, the lookout mountain Inn. Oh, sorry. I, I do have the stats on the hotel. So, the Lookout Mountain Park Track came into being in the summer of 1908. The Lookout Mountain opened in 1912 and then burned down in October of 1918. So my apologies on that. Um, but the Lookout uh, Mountain Air, Air Force Station was a 100,000 square foot facility where they ostensibly made training videos for the military, edited them. They did um, spots with celebrities. Um, in an average year, Lookout Mountain produced uh, 150 reels of finished film, a reel being 10 minutes of film, or roughly 35 to 40 finished films. That's the official story. Uh, I think they produced a lot more movies than that. Um, among those who have starred in the Air Force, um, in Air Force films, shot at, uh, the Hill, as lookout personnel called the studio, were Reed Hadley, Bob Hope, Jimmy Stewart, Robert Preston, James Garner, Juliet Prowse, Gregory Peck, Keenan Wynn, Marvin Miller, Les Tremaine, Kim Novak, Glenn Ford, Lee Marvin. And it was also rumored that uh, Marilyn Monroe was involved in some of the films as well. Uh, what's really interesting about the Lookout Mountain Air Force Base is to this very day, not many people know about it. Um, it, it was really kept under wraps even when it was a it wasn't even officially declassified until 1997 and it's currently owned by of all people eerie actor and who i believe to be a cult-like personality jared leto so they had this not only had this hotel that the elite went to it was only accessed by the elite had one road in one road out you have the Lookout Mountain Air Force Base up there. And 
the rumors of what kinds of films they make are anything from atomic bomb testing to MK Ultra experiment videos to one's imagination can only span. Um, but I think Kubrick was referencing perhaps both of those things in The Shining. Um, and what's really, really interesting is that The Shining, you know, one of the most prominent pieces of The Shining is that photograph at the end that has all the members of the hotel and Jack Torrance at the center of it. And what's really interesting that most people don't know, but I know to be true because I know people who live there, Laurel Canyon has a neighborhood photo that they take every single year in front of the Laurel Canyon store. And it sounds rather innocuous, but when you consider the fact that LA is a notoriously unfriendly city and that neighbors often don't know each other at all, and there really is no such thing as a true neighborhood other than neighborhood pockets in Los Feliz, Silver Lake, Echo Park, and you could argue certain parts of Hollywood. It's really weird that you have a neighborhood that has this photograph and that that same neighborhood has been exposed by Dave McGowan as being a very closed off neighborhood filled with mysterious murders, mysterious fires, all kinds of lore about sacrifice, dark rituals, the CIA, magicians. And it's a very closed off neighborhood. It's always been inaccessible to the public. You have to know the right realtor to get in there. Um, It's a very tight knit neighborhood that's closed off to outsiders. And I think that that photograph perhaps might be a calling card for Stanley Kubrick exposing what's going on in Laurel Canyon. And by what's going on in Laurel Canyon, I really mean what's going on in Hollywood. Because at the time The Shining was made, Laurel Canyon was the center of the film and music universe. Um, Hollywood was there and Beverly Hills only in name only. It was really Laurel Canyon that was the center of everything from the hippie movement to the uh the 60s countercultural revolution to uh the the revolution of filmmaking in the 70s even up to punk rock and new wave in the 80s so i think that that andrew getty is making a reference to the overlook because he's signaling that he knows what kubrick was trying to communicate in that he was trying to expose what was going on in Laurel Canyon. And he used that hotel in the shining as a mirror of, of the lookout mountain Inn, and as, as a double entendre for the lookout mountain air force base. And I think that's why he, he is referencing that there's another reference that I don't know if I want to get into, but I think it, it does reference the shining, but it's, it's a little absurd, but, I do think at a base level, this is enough for me to know that this is why he was referencing The Shining. Also, too, I mean, just the the way that Andrew Getty does the hotel or excuse me, the house and the evil within. I mean, effectively, it's a character just like The Overlook is in The Shining. 
so that's also, I think, another major aspect of this. But anyway, Clay, uh, what's your take on the disturbing painting was the so-called skin face? Uh, yes, let me get into that. I'm just looking at my notes here. So, yeah, um, let's see. We're So there's a disturbing painting on the wall um, just across where the mirror is is introduced by the hamster uh, uh, tunnels. And it first appears at 11 minutes and three seconds in, and you get a glimpse of it. And you're like, what is that? You're like, this is something really darkly disturbing and creepy, but you don't really see it. It's enough to entice you. But then you see it in full frame at around 13, 13 minutes and six seconds in. So, it looks like a painting of a twisted Statue of Liberty character upon first glance. Um, that That's what most people might mistake it as, as some kind of modern art pastiche of the, uh, of the Statue of Liberty. However, a closer look at it reveals some really disturbing things. N- number one, there seems to be two circles one with a square one with a circle or one with a a circle inside of it and i would argue that those are a stop and a record button and there's a what looks to be a small tripod on there and then what's really eerie is that so the, there's a stop button, a record button, a tripod button, but you wouldn't notice it unless you're unless you look carefully. And then in the right of the painting, there's this really, like I said, a dark looking upon first glance Statue of Liberty figure. But when you take a deeper look at it, the eyes seem to be bleeding out. And the thing on top of its head seems to be not the Statue of Liberty crown, but perhaps some kind of, I, I don't even know what, some kind of dark crown or perhaps some kind of torture device. But what's really eerie about the the face is that it represents what I believe to be the some kind of dark ritualistic reference to uh, sacrifice that is in Hollywood. And you can see it on the volleyball that Tom Hanks has in the movie. Uh, um, I forget the name of the movie, but he refers to it as Wilson, where he's trapped on the island. Um, Castaway. Castaway. And you see it there. And, and then somebody connected the dots and showed that Ellen DeGeneres had a sweatshirt with this thing on it and other celebrities had it. And it was so eerily similar to that Wilson face that it really begged the question of what's going on here. And to see that similar face in this painting next to a stop button, next to a record button, next to a tripod, and then next to this makes one wonder in the bottom left of the frame of the painting, there is what looks to be a scared child in, in, in a triangle on the lower bottom section of the painting, all of that together. And the, again, the way the painting is featured, it's very prominently shot. It's probably in frame for about two to three seconds. He wants you to see it. It's one of the one pieces other than the mirror 
and uh, the dinosaur skeletons and some of the other stuff, the 50s decals that he wants you to see. He's clearly signaling something here. So you have all those elements together. And if it were just that painting, it'd be like, okay, that's kind of trippy or it's kind of weird. It's kind of macabre or whatever. But when it's combined with, with the imagery that we've seen in pop culture through that Wilson volleyball and these sweatshirts and shirts that these celebrities are wearing with that very image on it, it really makes you wonder what's going on. And I, I think he featured that painting for a reason. And that was one of his coded maps. All right, uh, Jay, what uh, is your take on a cold initiation in the film? Well, you know, I, it, it's funny because with all that stuff that you're talking about, Clay, like if all that stuff was in a movie it, by itself, that would be strange enough. But this really is one of those movies where like, where the, the subtext is the text, like, the action of the movie is literally just showing, you know, like, as you guys mentioned earlier, the, the graduated levels of initiation that hypothetically someone would be taken through starting with animals and then, you know, children and full on, uh, you know, large scale murder or whatever. And I think that the justifications that Dennis's mirror doppelganger gives to himself you know, sound remarkably resonant with some of the, some of the occult justifications for, for sacrifice and things like that. Like, you know, you have to do this to show that you're, you're able to understand what rules are, are, uh, are viable and, and you should follow and which ones aren't you gotta you, So you have to, you know, you have to do these things. You have to break these taboos to determine uh, for yourself that you're not bound by, by, the restrictions that everybody else is bound by things like that. You know what I mean? Like, I think, I think it, uh, it definitely lines up on that point for the arguments that could be made for, for the, for achieving illumination through these types of ways. Well, that is a good segue in our next point of discussion, namely, is the film a reflection on how children of the powerful are effectively possessed? So Clay, you want to start that one? Yes, I, I do believe that's what he's communicating. I, I think the main message of this film through Dennis's gradual progression into uh, human sacrifice and more disturbingly child sacrifice is he's trying to tell you what, what is happening in these elite families. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And one of the main messages he's trying to communicate is that at a young age, not only do they go through these dark killing and sacrificial rituals, but there is a pact that is made with a demon. And that I think is the purpose of of these rituals is to raise these these children in a manner that makes them sociopathic psychopathic uh with no human emotion to be able to steal money from the poor uh you know displace people in their homes start wars uh kill thousands of people if not millions of people with their actions pollute do all these grossly abjectly immoral things and 
So there's a really telling scene in the movie that speaks to this demonic pact, because that's the purpose of these actions, right? At least I think is to make a pact with some kind of demon. And that's what cadaver is. So at 49.19 in, uh, 49 minutes, 19 seconds, Dennis has a telling conversation with his demonic altar, which is his demonic self within the mirror, right? The, the self that talks normal, that isn't, isn't stunted, isn't, uh, um, uh, mentally, uh, um, I don't know what the right word is, uh, not retarded, but mentally, uh, deficient. Um, and he's, he says the following, he goes, he, Dennis asks, who are you? He says, I am Legion. I've been called many. Where are you? Dennis asks, I'm right here. The dark place. Where is the dark place? Dennis asks. I'm not sure. I couldn't show you on a map. I do know this, though. No one ever wanted to come but you. Whoa, Dennis, you would love it here. If you came here, you would be happy for the rest of your life. If I went there, I would be happy for the rest of mine. So I think the dark place is referencing what we call the what is called the deep in the Bible or the subatomic zero point energy, which all matter starts from where, well, perhaps not all matter, but, but that, that area of the deep that is beneath sub sub quantum subatomic foam or, or um, quarks. And that's why it's really interesting that CERN is trying to probe that area of um, subatomic particles right and there's been all these dark rituals that have been conducted at the CERN lab so I found that very interesting as well but this is where I think this is one of the most telling lines in the movie so they continue and the demon says to him his demonic altar in the mirror says just keep doing what you're doing it will make you smarter it will make me go to where you are and that is the demonic pact of the elite, right? It will make you smarter. I will give you intelligence. I will give you strength. I will give you sociopathy. I will give you psychopathy. And then in return, you make me go to where you are. I get to possess, you get to be possessed by me. I get to take your bodily form. So I think in my mind, that's the most important line in the movie is in what he's communicating is that these families are making packs with demonic entities and it starts with their children. All right. So Jay, how do you see the evil within as both an exemplifier and a surprising deviation from standard horror tropes on a lighter note? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, basically just in everything that we're discussing, like, on paper, you know, it, you could, you could, you could pull a very conventional, you know, uh, schlocky horror movie out of the idea that, oh, there's, there's a person and then they have this reflection of themselves that they interact with that's actually satanic inside of a mirror and it comes into the world and, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street or, or whatever. Uh, so it, it is that, but the, the extent to which it doesn't play by any of those rules and to which it contains all these other uh, things, you know, is, is I think really shocking and remarkable. And, uh, you know, even that, you guys were talking earlier about how 
horrifying clay i think you said how the the uh the climax is with the with the animatronic show in the basement uh and you could put it against a, a lot of movies and it doesn't have anywhere near as uh, there's hardly any gore in it like it's it's gross but it's not you know there are it's not martyrs right but i think that it is in its own way just as if not far more disturbing than something like that uh because there's so much like, clear like emotional force behind it like it's it's a lot to take and uh so there's that level of it the fact that it has a uh an energy that kind of goes beyond what's actually in it you know or, or, or an energy underneath it uh yeah i lost my train there shockingly <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah it's a, it's it's not it's not standard at all even though on paper you 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 wouldn't think that it is what it is uh, absolutely man i, I agree 100 percent with that well all right as we head into the home stretch i wanted to return to a point that, that has become a major interest of mine of late and that is animatronic devices You'd already gotten into this a little bit, but do you have anything else to add about how animatronics are used in the film and the implications for it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think that he's trying to tell us about the idea of the android, which is animating dolls through uh, with human souls or tulpas, and I I think that he's communicating that. Um, through the idea of this, the macabre scene at the end that a lot of these elite rituals bring the sacrificial energy uh, of these sacrificial rites into objects. And in, in certain cases, they would be animatronics. And I think that's why you see that so much in House on the Rock and why he's communicating that here. And I think there's there's something to this idea that the elite have storehouses perhaps of these mannequins, dolls, um, objects. Uh, they certainly don't have to be human in form, but they have storehouses or they even have them as objects in their own home that have assumed the energy of sacrificial and dark rituals. And, I think that's what he's communicating. And I think the reason he uses animatronics again, in my mind is I think he's referencing house in the rock um, specifically, but I, I could be off on that. But again, it's just the idea of the Android of, of bringing uh, uh, the dark Android of bringing sacrificial rights and the dark energy from that into an, uh, an object and animating it with that, that, dark matter for lack of a better word and again what's really interesting is is that the more we look at ai and and the idea of transhumanism the more we hear from these programmers that they feel like they're they're not only just building algorithms but they feel like they're interacting with demonic entities and uh or or entities from the other world and uh i will leave it with that I want to circle back what I was saying at the beginning. Uh, there is a 
very rich history of various devices, most notably statues, but also heads, uh, makeshift heads, mechanical heads, things of that nature that were said to be endowed with spirits so that they could talk in the ancient world. Uh, specifically, the Egyptians uh, had quite elaborate rituals to communicate with their gods through these, you know, alleged speaking statues, right? So it is fascinating when you look at a lot of the pointed references made in things like house and the rock in regards to this and again speculation maybe more broadly speaking about uh, something like disney world but i mean certainly now as we are getting into the future with ai uh at the next level here essentially from these animatronics where we'll have uh, potentially full-blown robots uh, with sentient intelligence from AI or something to that effect. it's um, It does raise questions potentially going back to what the ancients were possibly talking about and what may potentially be animating some of these devices that we will be getting in the near future. Uh, one other thing, too, about the animatronics that might be interesting to get into here was Andrew Getty's personal fixation with them. Uh, Jay or Clay, could either of you speak to that? Other than what's evident in the film, I was not aware that that was like a specific thing for him. Although, I mean, clearly from the film, it's a specific thing for him. But uh, I don't know. Is there a, is there a further story on that? Yeah, yeah I'm, I, I'm sorry. I'm not aware either of that. I Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Well, I believe he actually built most of the animatronics used in the film, if I'm not mistaken. And... He certainly ended up owning them uh, and at great personal expense. Uh, I think that was actually one of his major concerns towards the end of his life. And he was facing bankruptcy because he didn't know where he was going to be able to store these devices if he lost the house that he was living in. So that's kind of another thing that I, I find very eerie about the whole saga uh, is because it's it, it you know again this movie is not that old so even doing the animatronic devices at the time frame when it was you know being filmed i mean what it started production like oh three oh four something like that right jay uh, yeah 2002 okay 2002 well even then i mean cgi had already surpassed practical effects very rapidly and certainly as the movie progressed it would have been so much cheaper to do some of those sequences with cgi so the fact alone that he opted to use these really elaborate animatronic devices at a personal cost for this film is very peculiar in and of itself, it certainly could be argued that he could have saved a lot of money and uh, hardship, frankly, by just doing CGI. But it seemed like he was quite dead set on using the animatronics for this film, that it was very significant to him that a lot of the effects were done with animatronics. That's a, a good point. And, you know, you could you could write it off as, you know, uh uh hipster fetishization of old school techniques but the way that it's all presented in the movie and stuff it's it's i think it's not only more effective than than cgi ever could have been 
but it's it's indicative of a fetish of its own, I guess. Cause I didn't think about that. Yeah. He did all the special effects himself. So, so it couldn't have been easy, you know, like there's some intense stuff going on in there. Cause yeah, that stuff. I mean, this is like the kind of stuff guys like Jim Henson, you know, made a fortune off of building over the years. So, I mean, if, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he had to first teach himself how to even build this stuff in the first place, which is quite an endeavor to begin with. So just going through that whole process like that, it's it's almost unprecedented. I, I cannot really imagine another set of circumstances with a film where somebody went through this kind of trouble for a really antiquated special effect like that. Yeah. And stylistically, it's like it's all like super like it's like moving Joel Peter Whitkin type stuff, you know? Well, it's also interesting too, right? Like how does one get into, unless you're Jim Henson, like a puppeteer, like he, he has a real interest in wanting to be into animatronics, but like it, it just begs the question of how does Andrew Getty get so into animatronics, right? Like where did this hobby come from? Where Where did he feel the need to build this himself? And that's a really important question to ask in the craft uh, of this fi- of his filmmaking uh, of why he felt the need to get so personally involved in building it yeah there's an extra on the dvd where he talks about uh as a kid you know doing like you know forced depth special effects where you have like a dinosaur sock puppet in the foreground and then he's talking about how he has his brother standing in the background but it looks like the dinosaur's you know biting at his brother or whatever uh so on one level, yeah, like they were making movies as a kid and it's a logical progression from that. But I, I agree that I don't think that it's, A, how did he get so good at it? Because he's like, the, the, there's almost like chops on display in the way that it's executed. And then B, in terms of the content and the feel of it, again, you circle back to how, how, much, uh, how much turmoil is clearly behind the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's very telling that, I mean, like I said, you know, earlier, one of the main concerns that he had is he was going broke wasn't so much even his financial stability so much as how he was going to afford to store these animatronic devices. Uh, Just it really was an obsession with him there. So, yeah, it's another odd thing about one of the oddest movies that's ever uh, come out of Hollywood, which is saying something to put it mildly. Well, all right, gentlemen, it has been a great discussion. Do either of you have any uh, closing thoughts here before we sign off? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, I think I'll leave the audience with this, which is that Andrew Getty was clearly trying to tell a story here that was deeply personal. This was not just a horror film. This was intensely personal, and you can tell that in the film. Um, I feel like he it was his life's mission to get this film out. That's, the, that's why he spent 13 years on it, 12 years on it, almost went bankrupt, um, and essentially lost his mind in the process. And uh, th- there's just so many breadcrumbs here of what he was trying to tell. And, and honestly, Recluse, I'm 
so honored to be on this show because I think we're really communicating an important message here. And I want to give a shout out to the guys at Subliminal Jihad. They did a great show on this as well. And um, it's this 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 podcast is really important. And it's it's important that we communicate this message because um, these these people are, are evil in the elite and they need to be exposed. And Andrew Getty was trying to expose that. And I'm blessed to be here with you guys doing that, doing that work. And again, as I had alluded to at the beginning of this, to sort of bring things full circle, um, J. Paul Getty was involved in these weird sex circles with Stephen Ward in the UK in the early 60s. We had figures like Thomas Corbley lurking about. Uh, Corbley later had this bizarre S&M scene in the Hamptons and Long Island uh, during the late 60s up up to at least, I think, the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, It's my contention that this is very much what Kubrick is uh, referencing in Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, the mansion is undisputedly on Long Island. You see that when the Tom Cruise character is uh, driving back. At one point, you see the sign for Glen Clove, New York, uh, which is right there on Long Island on the way to the Hamptons, and given the direction that he's going in. So uh, this is a world that Andrew Getty may well have had insight into. And that brings up, um, again, a lot of disturbing possibilities. If you've read my book, A Special Relationship, some of the parties that Ward, or the circles, I should say, that he was involved with, there were some weird stuff that went on in them. There were some very occultic type of stuff. So this is all a part of this sort of broader milieu that at least some members of the Getty family were interacting in. So at a minimum, I would say Andrew Getty certainly believed some of the more incredible allegations that potentially been levied against some of his contemporaries in such social circles and even his own family. Uh, And that, you know, again, is at a minimum as well as I believe that he also had strong thoughts on the purposes of some of these mansions, uh, some of these amusement parks and these other strange architectural oddities that have been built across this country, across Europe, across many other places by the aristocracy over the years. So again, all speculation but there's a lot of stuff that's very difficult to ignore in this film it seems very pointed at various points as we've noted and ultimately there's just a lot of strange things such as as i was just alluding at the obsession with animatronics the appearance of basements in it just a lot of stuff that it's just not easy to explain uh, from a practical filmmaking standpoint. Well, I mean, I guess the basements, I mean, would be a common plot device. I suppose you could throw in and because a lot of people who don't live in LA aren't going to be aware of that, but the whole thing with animatronics just makes absolutely no sense from a financial perspective on making the movie. But again, there's just so much that could be said about this movie. So that i suppose we will sign off for now as always i want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support and with that 
good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the go Jay. We were ready. My people there, they feeling me. More characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki, up Stuck down in this stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About again, it's Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught a realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday. Civilization, what?